Cameras, Free Minds Connected, with hosts Dave Steele and Adam Rubel. Free Minds Connected would like to thank Isaac and Katie Hotz of Wilderness Working Dogs for their continued support. Isaac and Katie have kindly donated another pup to be sold at this year's Ray White Livestock Rockhampton Working Dog Sale on the 23rd of April. If you're looking for a quality pup started or going dog, shoot Isaac a message or Google Wilderness Working Dogs. Thanks, Isaac and Katie, for your support. The team at Three Minds Connected would also like to thank Gary and Nettie Went, organisers of the Ray White Livestock Rockhampton Working Dog Sale and Trial. Gary and Nettie have kindly made a donation to the podcast. All proceeds from this donation will go towards bringing you more episodes and some merchandise that'll be for sale later in the year. Thank you, Gary and Nettie, for your donation and jumping on board to become part of the podcast sponsors. Well, hello, it's Alistair Cool here, and uh, I'd just like to say that it is my absolute privilege to be able to um, interview uh, you, Dave Steele, as one of the founding members of Stock Dog Handlers, uh, Three Minds Connected. And as we sit here on your uh, back veranda at your home at Stanford Park here, it really is not just because, you know, I really want to share the insights and, and some of your experience and, and your opinions on on a range of topics, but it's also because I get to share a bit about yourself and your family and, and what it is that really makes you tick. So, look, I'm really looking forward to it. Um, I must say right from the get-go that I uh, will definitely try and follow your Fairly casual, um, <laughs> unscripted, and, and look, maybe a little bit loose uh, format that defines this podcast, but um, honestly, I think, please bear with me, and, and um, this is not my uh, natural state, it's not something I'm used to, but look, bear with me, we'll have fun and um, see where it takes us. So, Dave Steele, welcome to your own podcast. <laughs> um, Thanks, mate. <laughs> as it is customary with uh, all of your podcasts, we sort of start off with um, a little bit about you and, and where you've grown up. So, look, I had it on good advice that in actual fact, um, your first words m- might have been around uh, a horse when you were growing up, uh. I've since heard that that may not have been true, but... Can you start off by telling us a little bit about, you know, where you grew up and, and possibly even where did your passion for animals first start? Um, yeah, g'day everyone. Um, I might just start by saying that um, I feel a bit uh, feel a bit different sitting on this side of the mic anyway, but um, yeah, like Al said, it'll get loose and whatever. But um, mate, I, uh, I grew up, well, was start off where I was born. I was born in New South Wales, born in Newcastle, New South Wales, Waratah Hospital to be exact. So, um, yeah, not a Queenslander, born and bred. <laughs> um, but, yeah, uh, mum um, went through a bit of stuff early on when me and my older sister were uh, only young kids, three. Um, I was three, my sister was four, and... Um, and my father was actually um, killed in a truck maintenance accident. So mum had it a bit tough early on and uh, we moved in with our grandparents, moved to Ballantyne, in New- uh, suburb of Newcastle. Um, and then mum reasonably quickly met my stepdad, um, who's, oh, I don't really class him as my stepdad. He's been my dad since I was about four and a half. Um, we call him dad. My, my older sister calls him dad. He's been really good to us. And... Um, yeah, Dad was at the water board at the time in, in Newcastle 
Um, left the waterboard when we were reasonably young and we moved out to Singleton and um, in the Hunter Valley there. And, uh, <clears throat> yeah, that was sort of – Singleton was home till I left and came to Queensland. So did all my schooling in Singleton. Um, uh, finished school at uh, – jeez, I'm going to give my age away here. But, yeah, <laughs> left, left school in 1992 – as an 18-year-old and um, did did two years out at Tokal um, Ag College and um, was Tokal was good for me. Like we, obviously, mum and dad weren't were not off the land. Mum had family with with um, a country background. Her um, her grandfather was quite a good farrier. Um, her great grandfather was a blacksmith. Mum's um, auntie was had a big dairy farm out at Glendon Brook there, beautiful big dairy farm. We spent a bit of time out there when we were kids um, shooting and they had a piggery as well and we'd go down to the pigs and, yeah, it was awesome out there as a kid. I had fond memories of going there and out to Auntie Margaret's place. And, um, yeah, so at, at Tokal, I'll, well, I'll, I'll jump back before we go to Tokal, but... So at Singleton, we moved, we lived in town for a little while and then moved out to Westbrook, um, which is about roughly 20 k's out of town and um, always had a bit of a passion as a kid with horses. Um, and for one Christmas, um, when I think I was, um, I'm, I'm struggling to remember, but I think I was about 10 or 11 or something like that, got my first horse, was my Christmas present. Um and yeah, like didn't know how to ride. <laughs> she was pretty western there for a while. Had a few busters and whatever, but um, yeah. So sort of basically, pretty much just through mum and dad's lack of knowledge and nothing against them that that they just didn't have the knowledge to to progress with horses. Like I, I think I probably say I'm a um, self confessed homeschooler as far as horse riding goes at that age like I was pretty pretty basic just get on and ride like holy hell um mate I just jump in there I, I've heard it said that uh you're not really a good rider until you've fallen off a hundred times could you attest to that yeah I've had my fair share of buses I don't know I, I definitely would have had a hundred <laughs> but I haven't been I lost count after about the first five <laughs> but um you know, like it was good there at Westbrook. Like there was, um, so there was myself just up the back of us. There was two boys, one younger, one older. Um, and then up the road, there was a, a boy the same age. And then his younger brother was quite a bit younger than us. So there was the five of us there that were, we used to get up to some pretty rugged shit. Like <laughs> we, we'd get on our pushies and, and, like go all day barefoot out in the sun there was a swimming hole just across the road from us so yeah we used to get up to some stuff on horses you know like there was a fair bit of egging on like you know like we'd be riding around bareback and stuff like that doing stupid shit and yeah of course like mum was always pretty protective and she always prides herself on being very astute and knowing what her kids are up to every minute of the day but some of the stuff that she 
I think she knows. She knows nothing about. Like, <laughs> so we used to get it to some stuff, which was good, you know. I think that's a great way to grow up, you know, like five boys. See, and it doesn't even have to be five boys. It can be five girls or whatever, but just bouncing off each other. And there was obviously a few fist fights and whatever at times up in the bush. And um, so, you know, I mean, that's a that's a great way to grow up, I thought, I. Absolutely, and and I guess at Singleton there you'd be in nearly the heartland of thoroughbred country, and I yeah. think I've heard it from you in the past that you did spend a bit of time um, at thoroughbred starts. Yeah, mate, so, so while I was at Tokal, I uh, did my first year there. At the end of my first year, um, my sister was, she was um, working out at the power station there at um, in between Scone and Musselbrook, and and one of the ladies that she was working with, I think her boss, um, so her boss's husband was a South African fella and he had a, they ran a thoroughbred stud at Scone. Mm-hmm. So at the end of my first year at, um, at Tokal, uh, they were looking for someone to go out there and, and um, help with the horses and stuff. It was just a privately owned stud. I think they had maybe 40 broodmares. Cup, uh, probably 20 horses in work. Um, so between like the end of my first year at Tokal and then the end of my second year, all that, all that time I was, I'd go out on weekends and holidays and, and do the thoroughbred stud there. And then I was full time after I left the, the, after I left Tokal, I was full time at the thoroughbred stud. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. And what was it? That you did take out. What course did you do that? Um, so the first year was just everything. At that time, there was nothing. You you just had to do everything in the first year, and then in the second year, you could pick what you wanted to do. So it was more based around for me anyway. It wasn't really cropping or sheep or anything. It was beef, cattle, and horses. That we had to do a certain amount of. I think a certain amount from from recollection. I think we had to do a certain amount of like sheep cropping and beef and horses but i think like if you pick beef and horses as your main thing that was what you did so um we still had to sort of go off in our groups at times and do like a small amount of cropping and whatever and and like i think when shearing was on we might have gone up and shorn a sheep i think we you know when there was butchery on we we went up there and butchered a sheep or something like that but for me, with being more an elective down the road of, say, beef and horses, that was the main focus for for, for my second year there, yeah. Oh, fantastic. Sounds like a great um, high-level approach to all the bag, which is, um, yeah, which is fantastic. Yeah, and uh, we've just only, um, like last year, we went back to Tokal and just did a little, we were down in New South Wales visiting and, and um, took a pup down and donated it to the working dog program down there and just went back and saw one of my old instructors. And, oh, great. Yeah, she was actually she was actually down the horse program. Like the horse program down there now is vastly, more um, advanced than what it was when we were there. Um, I think probably, I don't know, um, like when we were down there, when when I went to Tokal, sorry, so like for I think for the first probably month, I think everyone rode with a helmet on a horse and then you had to go and get passed out to say that you didn't have to ride with a helmet. You could wear your, your normal work hat, which was which everybody wanted to do anyway. Yeah. Um, and then um, so in the first year, we would get the previous year's two-year-olds to ride 
um, the competent horse people would get the, the say, three-year-olds to ride, and we'd ride them mustering. Um, and, yeah, so we'd go out on the beef program and, and muster. Basically, if you were on beef, for, say, in the in your first year, you'd get two and a half days on one thing and then two and a half days on a separate thing. So you might do beef for two and a half days and then dairy for two and a half days. And if you were, if you were on beef for two and a half days, for at least two of those days, you were mustering cattle um, on college horses. Um, and um, so then in your second year, uh, I think in the second year, in the first year, sorry, I, uh, me and a couple other fellas, we hold a broke all the horses for the for those guys for the um, for like that that year's second years to break in and then we got to break in our own horses when we were in our second year yeah um and yet like we carried those breakers through too for the whole year some got sold off some got sold off to private buyers but like tokal now like mate that, their horse facilities down there are second to none they've got a beautiful big arena and Undercover arena, stables, massive horse program. Like some of the horses that they're bred to these days, like stallions that they're bred to, are just like some of Australia's best, you know. Like their broodmare band has um, really continued on through, like basically still got a foundation of what what we've got, like what we had back when I was sort of there, you know, like they they sort of still had a uh, big creamy stallion down there called Award when I was at, at um, Tokau, beautiful big horse, and um, just started to venture into the quarter horse side of it just as, as at the end of my second year they bought a little quarter horse stallion to bring in through those stock horse mares. So what, they've, what it was back then to what it is now, they've really advanced, have their own horse sale now every year, which goes pretty well you know like um yeah just was great to go back there really um nothing's really changed just like as far as the student type like accommodation deal is there it's still pretty much the same you know your own dorm everyone's sort of like with each other it's 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 a really great place to sort of go and learn a lot about agriculture i thought eh? Which is so great to hear, especially in these times when, you know, we're really uh, probably yearning to get more people into ag and, and the equine industry. So it's great that you're able to get back there and see it. So that's um, that's great to hear. Now, um, I guess I've spoken to a few people prior to this um, conversation and, and there seemed to be a little bit of a reoccurring theme about some long hair in your <laughs> And I know you fondly referred to it as a moule uh, in the past as opposed to the uh, uh, mullet, but... Um, <laughs> I've got one description here that, that described you as a uh, long-haired, head-banging horse rider yeah. um, in your youth and uh, another one from a friend of yours that's called you a tall, skinny bugger with long hair. I just wonder if you could just talk us through your hairdo back in the day, mate. <laughs> um, so that sort of came. <laughs> You've done your research, mate. Um, yeah, so when I sort of hit high school, um, was sort of... <laughs> This is embarrassing. Um, I um, I was I'm into sort of like being off the land. Everyone sort of thinks that I might like like country music, but I'm not a country music fan very much. Eh? But like, say, Guns and Roses were a big big hit when I was a kid. Like I was 13, and they just busted onto the scene, and 
being a bit of a town kid, lived out on property, whatever, but we used to come to school to town and, and all my mates, we all just played guitar and in a bit of a band early and that's sort of where the hairdo came from. We, were, we wanted to be rock stars when we were kids. <laughs> just, that's terrible. Um, but, yeah, like, oh, I mean, I still dabble a bit. Uh, I had a bit of a hand injury there at one stage when I was working with Kel's old man, so that sort of um, um, put a bit of a back burner on being as proficient as I'd like. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I I still like to get it out and have a bit of a tinker around here. and um, Yeah, so that's where the long hair, so when I was sort of around about that between sort of um, maybe 14 to 17, I, I wanted to be a rock star. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. And look, I've seen some photos that really would attest to that. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> Anyway, um, and I think that's probably just a really good point to jump in here and uh, to say to all the listeners that aren't familiar, um, Kelly is, of course, your fantastic and awesome wife, um, and you are the proud parents of three outstanding young gentlemen. I would have called them lads, but they're probably uh, too old to be called lads these days. Um, but probably, you know, and I'd like to hear it in, in sort of your stepping stones, where... Where did you go from Tokal and, and how did you end up in the sort of in Queensland and, and then I suppose as part of that, where did you and, and Kel meet up and, and I guess in leading to the end part of where you got here at Stanford Park. So if you could just give us a bit of an overview there, yep. please. Um, so uh, I finished finished Tokal at the end of 1994 and went straight to the thoroughbred, I think, I think probably even like the next day or not very far off, I, I was full-time at the Thoroughbred Stud. Um, so, uh, like I said before, they had, I think they had two paddocks from recollection. I think they might have had two paddocks there with um, 20 broodmares in each, had their own stallion, bred mares outside, um, and we would do all the uh, weanling prep, all the holder breaking, um, a little bit of the breaking, not so much, um, but like a hundred percent of the um, twenty horses that they had in work was was us boots on the ground every morning, like three o'clock in the morning. We'd get up during summer. We'd get up at three o'clock in the morning, go down to the track at Musselbrook. It's about from Scone to Musselbrook track, forty-five, just a bit, bit over forty-five minutes drive. Um, get to the track. Um, work through 20 horses, come home, do all the jobs at home and then back to the track roughly about 3.30, 4 o'clock in the afternoon just to muck out and feed up again. Um, so that was pretty constant for a few months. I can't remember exactly how long, but I think, I think probably maybe end of May, maybe, uh, yeah, roughly around then, I think I left the thoroughbred stud and um, I got a job with Clark and Tate up at Springshore at Central Queensland. Um, didn't know anyone up here. Um, just I had relatives at Warwick, spent the night with them, jumped in the car at Singleton, drove to Warwick, spent the night, jumped in the car, drove to Springshore the next day, and that was me for 12 months. Bit of a leap of faith. Yeah. So left like 40 acres at at, um, at uh, well, the th- I think the thoroughbred stud was about 80 acres, but the home block where mum and dad were at Westbrook was only 40 acres, just a hobby block, a few head of cattle and a couple of horses was all we had. And and um, 
moved to moved to Springshaw, went to went to Mansion. Uh, um, I think Mansion's uh, one hundred and forty seven thousand square mile. Uh, so yeah, I'd never seen anything like that. Never been put in that situation. Um, didn't know anyone. Um, was just lucky that I jagged a job where there was a good manager, good overseer, and the other ringers that were there were good fellas. One of them's a lifelong mate, like a brother to me now. Jake Swift was there with me then. Um, Jake was already there when I when I got there, um, and I I knew nothing. Like I thought I knew how to ride and muck around with a few head of cattle at college, but that was nothing compared to what I stepped into up there. And and like for the first probably, oh, for the first I don't know month that we were there, there was no mustering on. Like we spent a lot of time on horseback, but there was just like it was just I I just lobbed there at a time where they were just cutting strainers and and that was it. And old chappy, old Keith Chaplin, he'd just get on that saw and cut trees down all day. And us three young fellas, we were on, <laughs> we were on either a sledgehammer or an axe, and he'd just lop trees, spit the do one cut up the bark for us, and the rest was up to us. So we just swung for a month straight and I blistered my hands <laughs> and sweated my ass out. <laughs> she was a, I thought, what the hell have I stepped into here? And Welcome to CQ. Yeah, yeah. And, like, Chappie was a weapon. Like, he just cut trees and the three of us young fellas, we couldn't blow wind up his ass. Eh? Like, we'd get up every morning and, like, we'd be driving to work. Um, Chappie would be driving one young fella would be in the front and the other two are in the back and we'd be talking to each other on the way up to up to where we were going to cut trees for the day and we like, fuck, Chappie, like, we're going to give it to him today. We'll just keep up his ass And, mate, he'd just start lopping trees and, like, he, we just couldn't keep up to him. <laughs> he'd be sitting down rolling the smoke and there'd still be, like, five trees on the ground all cut up into strainer lengths with a split bark and everything for us and we'd be just hanging back on these sledgehammers and axes just going all day eh? like yeah it, and I mean like I wouldn't swap that for the world yeah right. and I hear that was uh, possibly about the same time you met Kill initially but yep. um, and then it was through through Jake I believe is that right yeah 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 yep. so I got so met met Kel met met Kel one night at the at the QA <laughs> at the pub in town and yeah, we've been together ever since. So, um, yeah, like, uh, so sort of did the mansion thing for the next, uh, till the end of, end of 95. Um, and then uh, Kel and I went to a job out at Alpha together um, at Star Downs and we were there for a bit and that sort of went south a bit for us. Um Anyway, that was the way it was. Um, moved back, Kel, we moved back to Yandabara to where Kel's parents are there. And um, and I was just sort of doing a bit of casual work here and there. Ended up going back to Clark and Tate. Not at Mansion though, out at Bimmera, out at Longreach. And I was there for a few months. And the manager and his wife out there at the time, they were just about ready to retire. Okay. And, um, and so... They sort of, like, when I got there, they sort of told me what the deal was and um, they 
didn't have a real good idea on what the new manager was going to be like and weren't pushing me in certain directions but just told me what was happening and and were really, really above board about everything, which was great. And I just chose to, as soon as I got there, I only stayed for the amount of time that they were there for. Um, and they were really good to us. They let Kel come out and she spent a bit of time out at Bimmera with us at, out there and and, um, and ended up um, only out there for a couple of months. And um, Kel and I got a job up at Mount Garnet um, with Tearley's um, up there at Glenruth. Uh, went up there as a head stockman and, and Kel was teaching the manager's kids up there with Pete and Kathy Kennedy. Yeah, excellent. And so, uh, obviously, again, further north, um, and how long were you up, up there for? Yeah, so we were there for, for roughly two years. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, that's one of the one of the best jobs I've had. Pete and Kathy were great to us. Um, the kids were awesome. I had four kids, two two young girls and two older boys. Um, Kel taught the second oldest boy, Sam, and the two young girls the whole time we were there. I think Sam might have left and went to boarding school maybe the second year that we were up there. But Pete was great. Um, taught me a lot while we were up there. Um, yeah, so um, Glen Ruth was 80,000 acres. Um, like open forest country, most of it. Um two 10,000-acre breeder paddocks, and the cattle were just phenomenal, like so quiet, beautiful, big um, drought master cows. Um, yeah, like the, the Atkinsons had previously owned Glen Ruth and put a lot of time into the temperament and the quality of those cows, and they were just a pleasure to, to handle. Yeah. Um, we used to run back up in one 10,000 acre breeder paddock we'd run into a bit of um, rainforest country and a bit of bit of rough stuff up there and um, um, we'd get a few clean skins come in out of the neighbor's place and um, yeah no we, we had a bit of fun there you know there was always a bit to do at times a couple of big bulls and whatever but I mean like I, I, I won't profess to being any sort of a hand around a, a big bull with a big set of racks or whatever I eh? say so, um, but, but just on that, I, I heard that the only thing that you possibly fear more than Kel is snakes. Uh, <laughs> and, and I heard there may have been a snake or two up that way, but yeah, we won't we won't, we won't yeah, on that yeah, Well, the thing is up there is they're freaking taipans, mate. <laughs> I, like, they don't muck around, those suckers. <laughs> um, yeah, ran into a few of them while we were up there, eh? Yeah. I'm a lot better with snakes now. <laughs> yeah. uh, good stuff. And then, mate, after that, it was moved back to CQ and... and um, yeah, Tim yep. took us through that, and, and yep. Possibly... So we left. We Pete and Kathy left Glen Ruth, and then we were there for a bit longer, and then and then um, sort of probably a few months after they left, it it's, it was still a good job, but it just probably wasn't the same. Um, Kel didn't have the the kids to teach, and she was only getting a limited amount of work with me. Um, so, so we decided that it, it might be, a, and we wanted to sort of start a family and get married. We weren't married at that stage, but yeah, we wanted to start a family and get married. And Glenworth at that time was fairly remote. Um, the living situation as comfortable as it was, was not ideal for young kids. Um, we were right on the, right on the banks of the Cameron river there. And there was a couple of times there where big lots of rain and the river had come up and the house got flooded and, um, so yeah, like it was, it was 
a more ideal situation for us to to move somewhere where it was a little bit more kid friendly. Um, so moved back to Springshaw, and um, Kel's old man was looking for someone at um, at Yandabara, so he moved back there and worked for Nobs's in the company situation. Then same people that well, same Stuart is who we work for privately now, but back then Yandabara was um, Yandabara was in a company situation with Stuart his father and his two brothers and um we were there for seven years um yeah uh so um that so nobses had just started to sort of ramp up their land holdings at the time when i moved back down um so they that had they had owned yandabara for for a a few years, quite a while, probably 10 to 12 years when I moved back down, I think. And they they just recently bought a section of Cunjanella of Allen Knobs. Um, they bought the Lake Salvador, 20,000 acres of the Lake Salvador part of Cunjanella, which backed up onto Lake Salvador National Park. So um, Yandabara was 42,000 acres and then they, they added this 20,000 acres onto it and then uh, about three years after that they bought um, Glenrock, was another 20,000 acres, about 30 k's from Yandabara and Kel and I actually moved down there and um, um, and then they bought um, uh, half of Beauchamp, they split half of Beauchamp with Alan and um, he got the back 20,000 acres that backed up onto Cunjanella and they bought the front 40,000 acres. So that took us up to about 100,000 acres the two of us were looking after together. Gee, it was a big job. And yeah. I think um, as part of that, you, you were engaged or married Yeah, got engaged. First, so before we moved, before we moved to, to Glenrock, um, we were married. Got engaged, were married, and Ash and Luke, ah, sorry, Ash and Nathan were on the ground by that stage. So while we we're still at Yandabara, the two eldest fellas were were on the ground. Um, I think Ash might have been. I remember him being a little bastard there, so he was probably about three and a half or four, just at that ripe mongrel age. Um, when we moved to Glenrock, um, we weren't at Glenrock very long and Luke was born. So all, th- all three boys sort of did most of their infancy growing up at, at, um, at Glenrock, yeah. yeah. Um, awesome, actually, probably that's just a good point to jump in there and, and can you just give us a, a little bit of an insight into those fantastic humans that are your sons yep. and, and what are their interests and, yep. and their ambitions at the moment? Um, so they're... The good boys, Kel and I are insanely proud of them that we um that we uh we were able to bring up three kids that are productive members of society, I suppose. Um there's a little bit of a lack of that, I feel, in today's world. Um Yeah, that I I mean, Ash was Ash is obviously Ash is the eldest, and and he grew up with four adults um, at Yandabara there on his own, and he was just an over overachiever from the time he started crawling. Like he was walking really early, and like you know, sort of basic sentences really early. Started talking early. Um, probably an overachiever still now. 
<laughs> well, he's still talking now. He's just a lot quicker. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's it. Yeah, that's so, it. So, so what does he do? He he's an auctioneer. He he um he he sort of did basically same sort of thing as me. Um, we're we're pretty proud of him for the maturity early on too. Like towards the middle of his high school years, um, he was going to school in here at at Mara and um grade ten. Uh, no, he might have finished grade 10 leading into grade 11. And I, they, Kel and he and Kel went in town one night um, coming into grade 11. And and um, the principal at the time um, just gave a bit of a speech and was fairly lacklustre about it and um, pretty much said to the students that if I, if I look around here and, and see that you've failed grade 10, I don't know why you're coming back for grade 11. And um, if you know Ash, things like that don't sit real well with him. Even at that age, it's say a sixteen-year-old or whatever it was, he just got in the car with Kel that night to come home and said he wanted to go to boarding school. Um, so yeah, he made the move early. At oh, I'll say like so for, for the last two years at 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 um, at St Brendan's, um, and it was tough to send him up there. Like he'd been with us for the whole time. Um, in and out of school, hadn't been away or whatever. And, yeah, Kel's, Kel sort of struggled with all the boys, really. I mean, um, she loves those I mean, I love them too, but, you know, mother's love's not, not the same. Um, no, she's not the lone ranger there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, I mean, so, yeah, so Ash went to boarding school. He did grade 11 and then Nathan was he, – he sort of struggled at school a little bit. He's a real sort of visual-type learner, doesn't do well with academic sort of stuff, and he won't, he won't mind me saying that. Um, so, yeah, he was sort of struggling in Mara, um, and we saw the results with Ash at, at boarding school at Brendan's there. So uh, Nathan went up in grade 10 and then um, – and then so we had the two boys up there and Luke was still at home and then and then Luke went up in in grade 8. So Luke did the longest up there but honestly mate for as tough as it is to send your kids away and not have them home every afternoon and whatever I wouldn't change a single thing and and that, the the boys all all say they wouldn't be where they are today if it wasn't for that school eh? like I I you know obviously there'd be people that say that their kids didn't have a good experience at St Brendan's but Mate, we were we just lucky at the time that our three boys just they flourished up there, eh? Like I wouldn't change a single thing, and and as you know, like education's so important, um, especially this day and age. Like there's it's a lot more paper driven than say word of mouth as far as your your skill sets concerned these days. So, um, yeah, like um, so Ash finished grade twelve. Um, he was looking down the barrel of maybe going to the DPI there at one stage. Um, but he sort of, uh, I think I think the autopsy side of it and the, what he had to do to get to that stage, excuse me, was, was probably a little bit overwhelming for him because um, he had to go back and do a biology course. And, there, and I mean, I, I didn't do biology at school, but I can imagine it's not, the easiest thing to sort of master. Um, so he sort of went down the road of, of um, looking into being an auctioneer, um, being, 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 a, being a cattle buyer, yeah. So, um, and I, I sort of 
just as a bit of a sidetrack, but um, Gary Went is a good mate of ours, and he's been on the podcast a couple of times. He runs a Rocky Dog Sale up there and trial. Um, he was bloody really good with Ash. Oh, sorry, good to Ash. Just saw something early and wanted to push him in that direction, and 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 Ash was up there with Gary for a little while and got him started with Ray White. Um, um, went down south, down near Bathurst there, was down there for a little while, just cutting his teeth down there for a bit, came back up and, and um, was up at, with um, Peter Dowling up at Charterstown, uh, sorry, up at Cloncurry for, for a bit up there and that sort of got his foot in the door and got him started. So he was doing a lot of live cattle sort of deals up there um, and then came back and did Horn and Bishop here in, in, in at Mower and he's now down at, now down at, um, down at Roma with um with Cyril for Top X. Yeah, great. Um Naif, he's a bloody weapon. He's the biggest kid you'll ever see. Like he's a proper <laughs> you'd you hate to run into him. <laughs> anyway, he's a big gentle giant. Um as I said before, he's a real visual type learner. Um just And very good with his hands. Very good with his hands, learnt to weld early, like by the time he was sort of Early teenagers, you could send him up to the shed and get him to tack something together and weld it together, and it'd stay. And loves machinery. Like I used to, I'd chuck him on the grader here when he was on holidays, and you could just sort of send him for the day, and he'd look after the machine, check it religiously for oil and cool it and everything in the morning. Like if that was just his passion was machinery, and we never pushed him into the horse or cattle thing. He'd come and muster, he'd come and brand and do cattle work with us, but. Most of the time he drove the, the bike or the buggy around with working dogs in it if it was a bit hot. And, um, yeah, he, he was a dog farrier and water for us while we were out, <laughs> while we were out mustering. Um, he's, he went down. He did the opposite to me, so I moved up from New South Wales. He moved down. When he finished school, he got a job down there with state water. Um, he uh, he was down was employed down there as an apprentice fitter and turner. Did his trade down there. Um, they were like so happy with him. I mean, we were proud of him too. Like it was tough. Like his second, I think maybe second or third. It must have been his second year. He was down there. COVID hit, and um, he only had my parents at Bathurst, but he couldn't go and see them because they were older and. If he was feeling crook, he didn't want to pass it on to them. Obviously, he had my sister at Blaney and my other sister at Gosford. Um, but, yeah, like when COVID hit, full isolation down there and he was down there on his own. So to come through that and and sort of um, still flourish was a big call for a young fella at that time. Like he was only 20 while he was down there, eh? So, um, or leading into 20 anyway. Um, but, yeah, like... Um, moved back up, took a quick show there at the aluminium smelter at um, at um, Gladstone as a fully qualified fitter and turner, and has ne- and like since moved out in his underground out at Moranbar as a fitter and turner out at the mines there now. Yeah, so um, going great guns. Like he gets all the shit jobs when he comes home. <laughs> if um, Dad breaks something um, and it's a bit too much for me to fix, I'll. Um, park it up in the shed there and Nate can fix it when he comes home, <laughs> crawls around underneath horse floats and that sort of shit, eh? So, so yeah, and then Luke, um, yeah, Luke, he's just been a little ringer from the from the get-go. He was riding horses from age four by himself and, like, 
trained to potty calf to ride and sort of do tricks on and I've got memories of him here with my trainer mob with my sheep like working sheep down a fence riding his potty roping a lamb off the back of the potty and yeah so Luke always had a bit of a um affinity with animals didn't matter what it was he could he was he'd just switch around to them but just yeah horses were his thing early um just loved his horses yeah so he's he's sort of um left school grade 11 um didn't didn't fully finish he got hurt pretty bad riding a bull um good little bull rider sticky bum little bastard and and um as um as you know, much to his mother's disgust, probably his father's as well, because we used to worry about him a lot, because he was, he sort of, he wanted to get into it, and then, and we were like, oh, yeah, maybe not, you know, it's pretty rough, but we let the other two boys play footy, they, they represented Queensland at, at um, under 16s and under 18s footy, so, you know, that's a pretty tall ask for a couple of young fellas to leave, to, out of the bush to go and represent Queensland, but, um, yeah, so Luke, he played footy, but he, he wasn't really into it, and then he wanted to go and do the bull riding thing, and um, yeah, bugger me, if he, bugger me dead if he wasn't good at it too, the little bastard. So, um, yeah, he he got hurt pretty bad there when he was in grade 11. He, he copped a horn in the belly, and it pushed his bowel up against his backbone and, and popped his bowel, and, and he ended up losing six centimetres of his bowel, which was pretty worrying for Kel and I. Um, because he was he was looking down the barrel of some pretty ordinary ordinary predictions there before he went into surgery um and luckily came out of it you know as much as I'd like to say unscathed he was pretty crook for for quite a while um so yeah that was his pretty much his bull riding career over he just uh, I wouldn't say he lost the passion for it he just probably lost a bit of um uh, I hate to say it, um, heart to get on one really. He just didn't feel safe, I think, was probably a better way to put it. Um, but, yeah, still, he's not afraid to jump on a waspy horse and give it a bit of four so. Well, I think there's a bit of a common trend there. When Nath comes home, he has to fix the stuff that you can't fix. And when Luke comes home, he has to ride the horses that yeah, you don't yeah. want to get on. So I think yeah, or I recommend he fixes them, one <laughs> or the other, eh? Like, um no. Yeah, so Lukey's Lukey, uh, Robin, Robert, like Luke did 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 um, a bit of time here at the little school at Bohemia, and um, and at that time, um, I'd probably just like to say a big thank you to Rob and Annie Donahue. Like they were really good to Luke at, as in his last couple of years at at um, at Bohemia there. Like just like, yeah, Rob sort of mentored him a bit, I think a little bit, eh? and they had a bit of a rapport when Luke was fairly young, you know. Um, and then, so when Luke left school, he did a bit of casual work around here for a while and based himself at home. And then Rob and Annie offered him a job there at Branga, just out the other side of Bohemia here. And, and he was over there for, for a bit with them. And they were really good to him, eh? Like, I, I can't speak highly enough of Rob and, Rob and Annie, you know. Like, they got two young boys themselves and they're good, brought, brought up really well, those two young boys, very polite young men and, and um and Rob Rob especially I mean Annie was great to Luke too but Rob especially was was very very good with Luke and um they sort of set him on a bit of a path in the industry that he's oh well down the road that he's taken now he's still in the cattle industry hey him and his partner Chels him and his partner Chels um Chelsea Knight they they do their own contract mustering thing and 
and they're just flat out all the time, you know. So, um, yeah, he does. He's just done a month um, um, breaking uh, big wedge of horses in with um, Bill Harding, and yeah, so he still sort of dabbles in the horse thing. Um, but yeah, most his prime focus is the contract mustering thing. Yeah. Oh, well, that's great. That's a great overview. And, and look, they are an absolute credit to you and Kel, um, both with the, you know, the ambitions that they have for themselves and the values that you've instilled in them. So, yeah, just can't speak highly enough of them. It's been a pleasure to watch them grow up. But I guess in the interest of time, we don't, um, we, we probably don't have a heap of it to cover the just huge amount we've got to get through. But is there anything yeah. else in your time in CQ that you'd like to touch on? Obviously, you had a few jobs, um, not the least of which was uh, a job in the mine for a little while. You built, yeah. your, own, built your own house. You were a, a builder's uh, off-sider there for a little while in Springshore and, yeah, and in numerous right. places. Is there anything else you wanted to touch on there? Yeah, so um, we did seven years at Yanabara and then Kel and I, like the mining boom was just starting to really ramp up in CQ um, and just through footy, just through playing footy, um, had a couple of contacts in the mining industry and, and so, yeah, I thought I might have a stab at going into the mines, went in with a 10-year plan and lasted two. Um, oh, it was good. It was good at the start, but I'd never go back to it. It, it. I think the thing that got me about the mining thing was probably just the people that had been in it for long enough to be able to just be proper whingers, you know, like they'd never been out and, and experienced enough of the real world, I think. I That sort of got me a bit, like, just trivial, minor shit they'd whinge about, want to pull up stumps, have a meeting, you know, like, go on strike. And I'm like, do you guys know what's going on here? Like, you're getting paid 90000 to $100,000 a year to work half a year, six months out of the year you're working. And you want to piss and moan that there's not enough tea bags in the crib room for you? Like, give me a break. <laughs> um, so, yeah, anyway, I mean, uh, yeah, the morning thing was good. I met some good good blokes, got got along great with some fellas, and, and it was good, you know, like, got to experience a bit of different stuff. Um, but, yeah, I'd never go back to it. As good as the money is, it's not for me. I get, I get to fill my machinery thing we've got just enough machinery here on the place that it, it scratches the itch that i need to jump on it and do whatever i need to do and then get off and handle some cattle or something like that <laughs> oh, excellent well mate we might at that point just jump forward to stanford park you've been here a little while now yep. mate can you tell us a little bit about the block that you're on here and what you do yep so um so uh work for back with with knobs's but just with stuart privately um been here for 10 years um so uh within just the bohemia district they've got three places uh this place stanford park and then yeoman the home block where Stuart is and then his son tom has a block just outside just outside um bohemia there prospect um so i think this place ten thousand, nine thousand over there and three thousand at prospect so yeah about 19,000 acres and we sort of sorry just to jump in there it might be 19,000 acres but it's some of the 19 best yeah. acres you will find in Queensland yeah so. yeah no it's pretty nice mate this I think I'm not being biased but 
probably Stanford's probably the best <laughs> the best bit of it. Leading up into that range there, it gets pretty hard to, to beat that sort of country, that beautiful Buffalo, Brigalow sort of softwood scrub sort of country. I it's um it's pretty nice. Um <laughs> Cal and I run this block and have done since day one. Like, I'll probably just jump back to when we first started. Like, Stewie, we, we, were, on a, we were on a place over at Billow for Wilson's. We were, over, we were there for five years and, and, and found out Stewie was looking for someone to come and look after Stanford. And, and um, like, we came and had a drive around with him and he's like, oh, so, like, we'll just give you the truck and you can start sort of thing. He had other applicants that he wanted to interview and he said, I'll do the right thing by them and interview them, but you've basically got the job. Um, so there was basically no honeymoon period for us. We just stepped in, took a week to move over, and a week after we were here, we jumped into a second round of weaning. So um, they came over, weaned with us for that first week, and then Kel and I have been on our own since then pretty much. So they don't come and give us a hand to muster. We get... Just in the last couple of years, we've got Luke to come back and give us a hand since the kids have left school and gone away and done their own thing. They come, Luke comes back now and, and gives us a hand to brand that first round um, now. Uh, Cal and I do the second round on our own. Um, yeah, like, as far as jobs go for for um, major landholders, like, we're pretty spoiled. Um, we get left alone a lot. The cattle are... Um, basically left to our picking process. We pick all the replacement heifers. Um, it's a fattening and bull breeding operation. So we breed all the commercial bulls or most of the commercial bulls for, for, for Stewie and Tom. Um, and just to be clear for the possible uh, overseas listeners there, that's uh, the Brahmins? Yep. The grey Brahmins? And Straight Brahmin cattle. Um, the fattening operation, they buy in a few steers because we obviously keep most of our male cattle as bulls. Um, so we'll fatten probably, we fatten all our own cull cows, cull heifers and and our own like steers that don't make it through the bull breeding program and then they top up the steers with some bought cattle, um, all fattened on Lakina. Um, the bulls are backgrounded here on Lakina and then um, we, we sort of background them right up until about the beginning of June and then they go to Yeoman into the feedlot there and go on to a silage mix over there. Um, so up until sort of end of May, June, we'll have anywhere between 150 to 180 Brahmin bulls here, which are great to handle when they're about um, 12 months old. And as soon as they hit that 12 months old, all they want to do is fight, root, and go the wrong way. Uh, <laughs> so we're pretty big on the foundation early on. Um, because it's only Cal and I and we've got such a large number of bulls, from, from the get-go, nothing changes. We, we muster to the same point every time. We take them to the same gateway just so that, like, when they get older and they do want to, if they do want to turn one on with you, the foundations there, uh, I think that's pretty important. Um, yeah, and it shouldn't be understated the, the impact that you can have on that too as well. You know, like the, the impact that you've had on the handling of, of these cattle, obviously it's a fantastic temperament to start with, but of what you are able to do with them and produce in terms of saleable bulls because it's very important for everyone down the line that you sell to and obviously you realise that and, and that's yeah. you know, the foundation they put on. So, no, it's a, it's a credit to you. 
I think that gone are the days where um, a little bit of a a little bit of a lively temperament you could still sell that bull. Um, back in the day, you can't do that now. Um, just with the thanks, mate. Just with a a bit of a um, lack of skill set from the younger generation, and not bagging on anyone. It's just it's common knowledge. Like everyone talks about it um, privately that we just haven't got the skill set these days is what we used to have so um workplace health and safety comes into it a lot and um you know backpackers come into the cattle industry um so the temperament has to be there in the cattle um no one wants to be sort of down a worker or be paying compo on someone that's been knocked down by a brahmin bull and we just don't we don't have that in our in, in the mob lodge. Stuart's very particular about temperament. That's his main thing. Obviously, the type has got to be there, but um, from a very early age, from from branding, if they're fizzy when they're when in the branding pen, they're cut straight up. Um, and then obviously we probably have about four or five chops at them here, through up until them leading to up until they go to yeoman. We'll have a few cuts at them, and then just before they get trucked to yeoman, we'll um, Tom will come over, or Stewie will come over, and we'll go through them one last time and just take that final cut. But usually by then, it's more a type-based thing. It's not temperament. Like the, all the temperament's gone out of them. They've had, they've been cut. They're in the steer paddock, getting fattened out as bullocks. Um, and even with the breeders, Stewie's real good with them. Like he just he just won't cop temperament. Eh? It's just not there in the cattle well in the mothers straight up and I think you know it doesn't matter whether it's a dog or a bitch or or uh sorry a bitch a mare or a cow like they spend most of their time with their mothers so <laughs> that's where a lot of their behavior comes from eh? yeah um and, and, and it's just great to see you know from a, certainly from a breeding point of view that that is a, is a priority so no fantastic to see you no doubt you're making a big influence there I guess um if we can just uh, keep moving forward because we've got uh, dogs to get onto. <laughs> but before we get to that, um, clearly, you know, horses are, have been a big part of your life yep. and continue to be that. Um, can you just tell me, you know, what, what was your f- recollection of your first horse um, that really was stood out in your mind as a good horse? And, and uh, there has been one nominated as Dipper. Uh, does, does Dipper ring a bell? Yeah, 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 Blue uh, Rain horse. <laughs> but no, more so, um, yeah, in, in your, in your, I guess, uh, life today, what has been a really good standout horse and, and what defines a good horse for you? What, what makes it? Um, I think for me, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to split it two ways as far as what, I'm, what, I, what a good horse to me was. Um, I had a, I had, a, I had Dippy, I had Dippy up there at um, at Glen Ruth. He was only young when I got there. Another fella had broke him in, and and he was still pretty green. But but he was he was a really nice horse, and and um, um, yeah. Anyway, I had another grey horse up there at Glen Ruth called Sav. Savvy, he was a beautiful big grey horse. Um, he was a weapon in the bush, eh? Like just. You didn't have to be on the blade of anything. You just send him, and he'd like slip round through trees and just canter across a creek. And he just like never shied at anything. He was he was a weapon of a horse. But if you did put him on something, he was right on the blade of it. And and um, yeah, like he would be fond memories of that horse. He'd be one of, easily pretty much one of the best bush horses I've slung a leg over. Um, as far as a horse that 
was um, really opened my eyes up as to what a horse could do. Would be a, a little bay mare. Oh, I don't want to get emotional about this one, mate, because it pulls on the heartstrings a bit. But um, little bay filly that we bought off, Jake Swift. She was only six months old. She's by one stylish Pepto out of a Docs Argyle mare. Um, um, Belle was her paddock name pretty much, and she's easily one of the best horses that I slung a leg over to put on a cow. She, she could really move. She had a ton of heart. She wasn't a real big mare, and... Um, um, but yeah, like she was just like a temp, everything about her apart from her size was just exactly what you'd want in a horse. Like she was good on a cow, good in the bush, quiet, like Luke was riding her after about 15 rides and yeah, she like every, I, I barely got to ride her when, when she was here because everyone else wanted to ride her, you know, like, um, but yeah, unfortunately we lost her. Um, yeah, she she died at the back of the house here with her third third ramp of of, um, of colic, which was tough. Um, yeah, she she she's she's one that'll stick with me forever. Um, um, we were fortunate enough we we got a filly foal out of her by Conman, and um, she's down with our with our other co-host down with um, with Adam Rogel getting trained down there for Tamworth now. And, um, it's nice to see her progress. Uh, as much as I, you might think I'm crazy, by con man out of a one stylish Pepto mare, um, I never slung my leg over. I never rode her. <laughs> to this day, haven't ridden her. Oh, yeah. Luke, Luke broke her in, did an awesome job breaking her in, took a muster and put like very minimal basics on her. Sent her down to Adam, and Adam's first report after the first ride he had on her was that like. Luke's done an awesome job, and I couldn't ask for any more than that, you know, like, um, yeah, <laughs> we'll go down and watch a sell at Tamworth in February, I mean, as much as I haven't ridden her, it's still going to be a bit emotional when I see her go, because just knowing what her mum was like, eh? Hey? Yeah, and it's, and it's a certain element of pride there too, in, in yeah, being yeah. able to breed from, you know, from obviously what you've selected as, you know, a good mare and a good stallion. Yeah. So it'll be really exciting. I yeah. think it's like to the second part of your question is what I look for in a horse. Like there's, a, like he's just there eating now. There's buckskin horse there. Um, he's he's as good an all-rounder horse, I think, as what we've had. He's just a nice big horse, gets around nice. Luke gets more, way more value out of him than I do. Like Luke drafts him and, like I think, I think the thing about that horse there is that Luke loves him and he tells me he loves him. But I've had a lot of people come to me and say, "Oh, you know, we saw Luke at the draft riding the buckskin horse, and he's such a lovely horse." And um, yeah, so I think that the compliments from outside, like aside from what we know, like what the family knows about the horse. Um, the outside compliments about that horse are, are very nice and very complimenting. So, I think there's probably another aspect there that you haven't mentioned on is that he's um, very um, he's quite suitable to all those because obviously um, our daughters had a ride on him. You know, yeah. he's not nearly yeah. as skilled as some of the others, and yet you know she was just you know in love with him right from the get go. Yeah. and that's a real mark of whether it's a good dog or a good horse yeah. where. You know, they can take different handlers and still behave in the same yeah. manner and, and rank oh, themselves. So. Yeah, 100%. Well, I mean, that horse had his pills in for a while. We had him as a stallion for a bit. 
Um, and he, he just he failed a DNA test to, to get ASH registered, so we cut him. Um, but I think in the time that he had his, had his um, pills in, um, we didn't treat him like a stallion. Um, we ran him with mares early when he was pretty young and they sort of banged on him a little bit. We had to put a rug on him there at one stage because they were bashing him up a little bit too much. And, and um, But I think it, it stood him in good stead. Like, we, you didn't have to beat on him when he was a cult. Um, it was only a matter, like, with the horse's mind the way it is, if he did get a bit culty, if you had him tied up and you let a mare past him or something and he got his he's weighing out or something like that. Like it was only a matter of sort of stamping your foot at him or giving him a little tap on the ribs and he'd, he'd suck it back in. And, and like we sort of floated him with mares. Kel and I could go muster him while he had his pills in and, and we could canter off up the road and, and he wouldn't be stupid about it. Like he never he never got coldy when I was on his back. He was only ever coldy a little bit when he was out in the paddock and, and that was only after we started breeding him to a few mares. But like you say, mate, like there's been a lot of people and, and like like you said too, their skill level hasn't been as good as others. Like there's aside from Lauren riding him, there's been other people riding too that, that haven't been like say I mean not that I wanna brag about being any sort of horseman or anything, but like there's been a few people riding that haven't that have had different skill set that have like, oh he's such a nice horse, you know, like for me, for a competition horse and a horse to take mustering you'd stretch to go past him really like he's he's a pretty nice horse so yeah that's great um and look it's great to hear about you know you obviously you're passionate with other animals as well but uh clearly what everyone wants to hear about is your dog so i think <laughs> at this point we need to we need to move into that um and i suppose it's no different to any of the other points that you've started with is is you know where did it start i'm thinking it wasn't particularly with jesse uh you blew him no right? no uh, <laughs> Uh, but but potentially, and I've heard it from a couple of different places that it was with a dog called Scarf that may have been uh, yep. up north. And and what was it about that dog that really sparked that fire in you to think that gee whiz, this is something that might yep. lead me to somewhere I want to be down the track? Well, Pete Pete Kennedy actually owned Scarf. Um, uh, I I would have loved to have owned her. <laughs> um, but yeah, when I moved to when we moved to, to Glen Ruth, Pete had two dogs there. He had a he had a New Zealand bred type dog or a dog that had a bit, fair bit of New Zealand blood in it called Tammy. Um, and then he had Scarf that was bred uh, Dennis Hanrahan bred her, so um, she was a Dios dog. Yeah, um, Scarf was um, like anyone today would be happy to have that dog. I I can't quite remember how she was bred, but certainly with Dios blood. But anyone today would have been happy to have that bitch in their camp. Um, she was just a solid worker, good strength. Um, probably the, the thing that just blew me away, and it's as clear as a bell today, was Pete and I were just driving out to do a lick run one day, and, and there was a few, probably five or six head of wieners in a wrong paddock, nothing else in the paddock. And they were just walking down the road <clears throat> towards us, and um, he had Scarf in the back, and he just like his Scarf over, and she just popped out around these cattle that trotted off the road down through the timber, and she brought the cattle back, and we probably drove I don't know maybe two and a half or three kilometres, and Pete never said another word to her, eh? Like she just brought him in behind the Toyota, and we drove off up the road, put him through the gate where they were supposed to be, and excuse me, dropped a bag of lick out, so. 
Um, and I saw her do countless other things that were just like, wow, like, <laughs> yeah. And I think that, that, like, the Glen Ruth job was good for me with dogs. Like, I used to go, got introduced to Tom Maloney up there at, um, at Innisfail, and, and we had a, so the guys that I was working for with Pete, they had a block at Innisfail as well, next door to where Tom was. And um, and I, I got introduced to Tom one day and, and Tom really, Tom Maloney really helped me a lot early on. Probably didn't, I, I didn't listen as much as I probably should have. I was just young and stupid and thought I was going to be a dog trainer. And, um, so, yeah, like, um, yeah, but like you say, Scarf, Scarf was the, the dog that probably set me on the road to thinking that I might go that way with um, and, and want to have some dogs like that at, at some stage for sure. And certainly, obviously, you, you had a few in between, but I hear that um, there was a dog called Haynot Riley that really yeah. got you on your, on yeah. your road to um, trialling. And, and just before you get into um, a little bit about Riley, I, I hear that um, you took him to your first trial. Is that right? And you went down to Roma, yeah. um, I think, and you went to um, not only did you go in the catalogue trial, which is, you know, a pretty big effort and a little bit nerve-wracking for the first time, but... You thought you would go all in and um, go three sheep trying as well. Uh, could you just give us a little bit of insight as to how that went and uh, and then tell us a little bit about Riley? So... I- <laughs> My cattle dog trialing career probably didn't take off as, as best as I probably thought it should have, but um, and my sheep dog trialing career certainly didn't go as well as planned. But um, but yeah, like so, <laughs> um, yeah, entered in the sheep dog trial because they had the two arenas going there, so all the sheep dog fellas were down the bottom and we were up the top of the cattle dog trial. And, and um, a good mate of mine, Bolsey, Steve Bowles, he, he convinced me to go in the sheepdog trial as well. He's like, oh, if you're going all that way, you might as well go in the sheepdog trial. Um, and I uh, just had no clue what I was doing, but had this, like, he was a full-on sucker, that Riley. I mean, like, anyway, so we get, to, we get to this little gate. I'm standing in this little ring of rocks, and, and I had one waspy weather. He kept on spinning around in front of the other two and coming back and stamping at Riley, and we're trying to get through this little gate. And, and um and Riley was just busting his ass to grab hold of this thing and, and I I had enough of a handbrake on him that I'd stop him but every time I'd sort of stop him the ram would walk out so I'd walk the dog up and and the ram would, uh, sorry the weather would turn around and and like yeah so just get a bit of flow and and then he'd turn back around on the dog again and I'd back him up and every time the dog back up the sheep would take ground off him and I was like fuck this. <laughs> <laughs> So I walked the dog right up and, and I'll make uh, the weather thought he'd try his luck and he charged old Riley and Riley grabbed him by the throat and he jumped up in the air and landed on the other side of the dog and so I had two sheep on one side, the dog in the middle and the sheep on the other side and they classed me as a cross and cracked me off, which is fair enough. And Anyway, I was going over to put him away and Bolsey had come down to watch me run and I'm walking out and he's got a big smile on his face and he's over there with old Colin Top and... and um, and uh, Colin goes, I want that sucker for the final. And I was, I was like, why would you want that frigging thing in the final? He goes, because he ain't pulling another dog on for the rest of the weekend, <laughs> <Yeah>. that bastard. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, he, Riley was, mate, he, I had him when I was at Yandabar and he was there with me for, uh, he, he actually, he, he got badly hurt in a mastering accident and um, and it was my fault. Um, and, um, 
yeah, like we, we he did a lot of work at Yanabara and there was there was very little that you couldn't do with him. Um, he was just a proper good mustering dog for me, probably a good dog for me to have early on, as much as I didn't know how to sort of do much with him, you know. Like I was still pretty raw then, like real raw, and sort of everyone was trying to give me a bit of guidance and I'd be like, oh, yeah, 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 but I wasn't taking notice. And But, um, you know, I just, like probably one freakish thing that I saw that dog do one day, we just had this sort of crippled up heifer in a wiener paddock and, Couple of couple of weaner heifers had bucked back through the fence and and got back into where they'd been weaned and and Kel's old man said oh I just go down and grab those heifers and don't worry about that crippled thing leave her behind and and um, anyway I, I went down there on a horse and and um, sent the dog out round they'd made it up with this crippled thing and and um, sent the sent Riley out round these heifers to get them off and didn't want the crippled thing and she was heading for a, for a big mob of suckers to to get away from the dog and. And he got halfway through his cast and just straightened and got in behind that crippled thing and healed the shit out of her. And and I was like, you bastard. I was cursing the shit out of him, eh? And he he pushed her away enough to separate him off the heifers and then headed the heifers and brought them down to me. And, yeah, I was like, geez, I really wish I hadn't cursed the shit out of you just then, yeah, eh? Because, right. But uh, he was good for overriding you. Like, <laughs> the, all the cursing, it just was water off a duck's back. Like, he was probably just not broke enough that it didn't mean much to him, you know? Like, um, yeah, so, so yeah, I got to see that dog do some cool <laughs> shit. I think I got to see him do some cool stuff because he had all the experience in the world because it was genetically in him, and I just didn't know what I was doing, eh? So he wasn't a trial dog, I'll give you that. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's a great point. We'll come back to that later. But I guess, um, and that's probably in terms of um, stepping stones and where you were at, It's um, I'm guessing that, you know, possibly the cool way prefix was somewhere in there. And, and yep. I guess uh, what I want to know is, where did the cool way prefix come from and uh, how on earth did you come up with a spelling for that? Because it's probably uh, to the detriment of most people that are trying to spell it, but tell us a bit yep. about it. Well, um, to be honest, it goes back to my guitar playing days. Um, there's a, a very proficient guitar player named Steve Vai and <laughs> that was where I came up with the AI at the end of, of way was, yeah, um, yeah, anyway, that's just where it was. Just put the cool way in front of it. So, yeah, cool. um, so yeah, anyway, um, yeah, started that, mate. Oh, mate, in the early days, I guess I was like everybody else. I pretty much didn't have a clue what I was doing, but I saw all these other people, handlers out there with a prefix on their dogs, and I thought, yeah, fuck it, why not? You know, so, um, yeah, anyway, it's been a pretty. It's been a long road to get to where we are now, but I think where I am now from what I started at, I think I needed to go through all that sort of stuff early on in the PSA. Like, I think that set me up for where we are now sort of thing. Oh. Well, just on that, it was interesting, and I don't actually have the time frames when you started your Facebook page, but I recall uh, the Cool Way uh, Dogs Facebook page. Um, and initially there you got to a 1,000 likes and you got a bit of a shout-out, you know, 1,000 likes, thanks, everyone. And then we got to 2,000 and you're like, thanks, everyone, this is awesome. Well, 
She was the last I saw her was about fourteen and a half thousand likes, and and to be honest, I think that'd make most OnlyFans. Yeah, <laughs> pretty impressive. So, but but I guess the point I was trying to make is that it, it's a good uh, testament to yourself that obviously that you've got that many people that are interested in what you're doing, and 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 the nous and um, tenacity that you've shown to get to where you are. So great stuff there. Um, tell us about some of your cool way dogs. I mean, I, I saw yep. one. And I'm hoping his prefix was Kuwait cool. was uh, Spark. Was he a Kuwait cool dog? Uh, yeah, yeah, he was. Um, um, and yeah. so just before you start on him, and I, that was probably the first awesome dog that I saw of yours, and that was going back a little while. And, and one, one in particular thing stuck out for me was at a, uh, a dog trial that we ran locally. And, um, and, it, and it gets back to, again, what we were talking about with this horse before, is that your son, Luke, um, actually took him to ribbons in both the novice and the maiden, uh, that dog, and he, you know, he worked as well for him as he did for you, that yeah. dog, and, and uh, I just think that that is such a great attribute to have in an animal, and um, so yeah, tell us a bit about, you know, Spark, and then and then go down the line, let's let's hear about Buck and, and a few of those others, so start <laughs> yeah. with Spark. Yep, so, um, so uh, I can't remember the year, but anyway, we, we bought Spark's mother out at the um, agro dog sale. Um, Bolsey put me onto a Steve Bolsey. He was just, he just, I asked him to find one for me, and and I really wanted a bitch. And certainly Freckles was not the dog that I was after. She she was extremely soft, but just had a, a great work ethic. She did, but she wouldn't bite a ham sandwich. She wasn't a strong dog, but she she would work her ass off all day. Like, and and just the softest, most nicest temperament you could ask for in a dog. Um, and Bosley at the time had a dog called Sky. Um, old Sky was his name. Warren Old bred him from over over at um, Baralabar, and um, we bought. We, I took Freckles over and joined the Sky, and then got a litter of pups and kept Spark out of that litter. Um, Spark for the first two years of his life was like when he was a pup, right up until he was two years old. He was with us at Springshaw on the little block that we bought and built a house on there. He did nothing. All he did was run around and mob a sheep, put the sheep in every afternoon. But I will say, like, and it sort of set the benchmark for for where I'm at now was um, I was working another dog one afternoon just training on one in the round pen there and Spark might have been about six weeks old and he was just sitting down on Kel's lap. Kel was watching me work this other dog and had Spark in her lap when he was about six weeks and he just basically went feral enough that Kel couldn't hold on to him and pushed his way through the mesh and just went to work, you know, at six weeks. So, and never, never stopped pretty much. Like from, from that day on, he was a work dog in his mind anyway. So, um, even though we were at the block at Springshore and we had nothing on there, I was in the mines, held on to him, um, left the mines, went out to, to Wilson's there. And he was a, he was roughly two year old when we went to Wilson's and, um, and I just took that dog to work and he never put a foot wrong. Um, did some huge big days out there. Bloody uh, herd bulls were pretty shit as far as their ability to be able to make it back to the yards. <laughs> and that dog for five years did his damnedest to um, to make sure that everything that he could see came to the yards. He was a proper good dog for sure. Yeah, awesome. And, um, I mean, clearly you had a lot of dogs in the interim too, um, but 
but another one that springs to mind that, that came along was uh, Natal Buck. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about Buck and where you got him and, and yep. why you bought him? So um, there again, we were back at the um, agro dog sale. Jeez, he's nearly nine. So, yeah, nine years ago, work that out for yourself. Um, uh, at the time, I'd, I'd, I'd sold a bitch. I'd sold a, a really nice bitch, actually, um, for good money. Um, but the bitch just didn't suit me here. She was too highly strung. She she was a lot of dog. And I just, as much work as we've got here for dogs, she was just too much. Uh, she was taken off when she was having a run and and um, of an afternoon and a morning she was taken off and finding cattle and she was jumping out of the back of the vehicle and pissing off to work cattle when she should have been at work with me and I just I got to the point where I was just at the end of my tether with her so we sold her and I said to Bolsey um, that I was interested in another bitch to to breed some pups out of and I, I was going to be very particular about what I was looking for and um, I looked for a fair while and couldn't find I found dogs mate but I just didn't find anything that I was willing to bring back you know like at least spend the money on um, anyway we're, I, I was judging over at um, Rockland Springs at Bolsey's trial there and um, we were having a few sherbets and Ended up over at Glenn Dixon's camp and and um, Bolsey said he needed a slash and that I should go with him and <laughs> we walked around the back to where Dicko's dogs were tied up and he Buck was tied up on the chain there as a 19-month-old dog and he said, that's the dog there, you should buy. And I was like, ah, I don't want to buy a male dog, I want a bitch. And he goes, mate, buy that dog, put bitches to that dog. He said, you'll breed five litters out of that dog every year. You can only breed at best maybe two out of a bitch. Um, so I, I had the, the very, um, the, the privilege of sitting there and judging and watching the dog go a couple of times during the weekend and like Rocky, I think, ah, sorry, Agro was only like two weeks away after that or maybe even the next week after it maybe. And I was sold at the end of that Rockland Springs judging thing there. I, I thought that's the dog I want. He's a beautiful big dog and. Yeah, so we went to Agro the following week or following fortnight or whatever it was and, and bought him at, at Agro, yeah. So bred by Paul Rowe and, and Dicko, Glenn Dixon, put him through the sale. He, he's by Glenn Dixon's dog, old Shelbrook Digby, out of um, out of Bruton Vale K that Rowie had and Dicko got Buck as the as the service pup out of the litter, yeah, so... Um, I guess and, and, <laughs> and, and just jumping in there look it's he's one of those dogs that um, he, he certainly was probably never um, destined to the dog trial arena even though he might have started there but, <laughs> but in saying that like what an incredible dog he's been both in terms of the paddock work he's done and the, and the dogs he's sired yeah for sure mate um, he's probably come full circle he's a better trial dog now at nine than he was at 19 months <laughs> um um, but yeah, like he, he was, and I mean, I, as much as, as I'd like to say, it was great to buy a dog of that caliber for his paddock work and everything. I was bloody lucky early on in the piece that a couple of other fellas probably saw a lot of potential there too. Um, um, so Timmy Flynn, um, 
he bought a, a real nice um, bitch to him, old devil, um, early on. Like, we, we hadn't had him that long. And um, so, yeah, uh, Tim, I think at the end of the first year that we had him, Tim, Tim bought a bitch, bought old devil over and bred her to him. And, and that was the result of Sandy that up there now still, at um, coming up seven-year-old. She's out of devil by buck. And then Trevor Turner, um, um, he bought um, a few dogs of Scott Finks that actually Stan Dunkley had bred and, um, and bought old Mount Barlow Sandy to, to buck and that was the result of Jem. So Jem was out of that litter that we sold at Rocky this year. Um, so, I mean, like as much as Buck's been an awesome dog for us, um, just in the progeny. Like, I mean, like, just to, to give you a bit of an idea on what's going on up there, like, there's Buck and then everything else up there, there's nine dogs up there, Buck's one of them. Um, everything else up there, bar one dog, goes back to him. They're either a daughter, a granddaughter, or great-granddaughter, or great-great-granddaughter to Buck. So, I mean, without him... I certainly wouldn't have those other dogs that I've got up there now. Um, and he's still siren pups at nine now. And I've had him collected and I've got semen that I can use there later on after he's dead and gone. And, um, yeah, but, I mean, like, Kel loves the dog. He certainly wasn't a dog at, say, 19 months to even, like, five years old that I'd even, <coughs> excuse me, I'd, I'd even think about sending her for mustering. She couldn't even sort of bend him. Like, I'd trot off on a horse to go and muster, and he's just like, no, I'm going with the boss, and she'd do all the calling in the world, and I'd look back, and that sucker would be just cantering along behind me. And But it's a different story now at nine. Like, I can't I can't her off on a horse, and most times I'm on a young horse, and, and yeah, like, I look back, and he's just walking off up the paddock with <laughs> Horses, Kel's horse's tail dragging on the top of his head. He's that close to. He's like, I'm not going with that sucker. So yeah, you know, I mean, um, he can put big mobs in the in the yard, or has has done in the past. Put big mobs in the yard. He's been busted by bulls. He's he's yeah. He'll front up to a cow that's protecting a calf, and he's. Yeah, like I say, without him, I wouldn't have Sandy. I wouldn't have had Jam. I won't. I wouldn't have had Rebel. Um, yeah, he's been a real proper good dog to us. That's um, and, and like I think probably one thing you haven't mentioned about him that to me is such an important trait is temperament. He is like I yeah. have one of his um, one of his progeny, and, and I just the the progeny just loves to be around you. And regardless of who it is, you know, kids, he's fantastic with kids. So. Yeah. No, it can't be, um, you know, I think, complimented enough, I don't think. Yeah, for sure, mate. I mean, that, and and that's one thing that he does throw, aside from a very strong heading ability and a, and a natural ability to go to, to go to work, the other thing that he, that he brings to the table, which probably compensates for maybe the lack of, or the, the yeah, say the lack of trainability, because he because he is such a natural dog, he doesn't really like to be told what to do and never has. Like if you started firing commands at him, he'd just give you the finger and just go and do whatever he wanted to do, especially around here on the sheep. Like if you sort of trained him, and he, like, you, like you said before, he didn't, he never lent himself to the trial arena, but he was just a proper good solid work dog. But yeah, like for the lack of trainability that was in him, 
the temperament and the work ethic compensated for that quite considerably, I think. Eh? Absolutely. So probably just stepping ahead, I mean, you've got numerous good dogs and, and probably plenty to mention um, until we get to, to Rebel. Is there anyone else you'd like to mention or give a shout-out? Yeah. In there? Well, without Rebel, um, with sorry, without Star, I wouldn't have had Rebel. Um, and, I mean, that was... Glenn McKay, I got to give a shout out to Glenn. Glenn just hasn't been good to me with, with, um, with dogs. He's been good to me with knowledge as well, um, as much as he probably doesn't think he has. Even just sitting and talking to him and and having a few beers, Glenn's been great um, and a and a real good mate. Um, haven't been mates for long. Met Glenn up at Rocky a couple of years ago and just uh, probably never really even hit it off straight away. But I think at that first meeting at Rocky, I saw Star for the first time um, and just just loved the dog. Like, I just saw him grab a heifer right in between the nostrils when exactly when she needed it. <laughs> and um, anyway, um, yeah, so Star was Crawford Star. I, I've really got to give a shout-out to that dog. Um, he Glenn rang me one day i was driving to town in the truck to pick some oat seed up and and glenn rang me said oh, i've got a dog for sale go and dog for sale if you hear of anyone i said oh mate i've got probably five people that'll buy a going dog leave it with me i'll get back to you anyway made a few phone calls basically had the dog sold um rang glenn back and i said oh what do you so what what is it that you got for sale and he said oh it's star and i said oh Fuck! If I'd have known that, I, I would have. What do you, you know, would have bought him myself, mate? And he, I said, oh, what do you want for him? He said, oh, five. And I, I was like, oh, mate, I, yeah, I'll have to let him go to one of these other fellas. I haven't got that money. He goes, oh, for you it'll be three and a half. So he really gave me a mate's rates. <laughs> and I mean, for me to buy a dog of that caliber for that sort of money at that time was just incredible. Um, I'd bred Sandy. I'd bred Sandy to star before Glenn sold him, and I already had Rebel on the ground. Um, so, so Rebel is is by Sandy. Uh, sorry, by Star out of Sandy, and and I already had her on the ground, and that was one of the reasons why I wanted to buy her, buy him. Sorry, by Star, and um, yeah, like went down there, picked the dog up, brought him home. There was a few people said to me when they found out that I bought the dog, they said, why did they buy that dog? He's a crossbred dog because he had a bit of Kelpie in him, see? And, um, and I, I don't, like, for me, a good dog's a good dog. It doesn't matter how it's bred. It's just if, it, if, it, if it's doing what it needs to do, it's a good dog regardless. And for a dog that had um, a head on him like a St. Bernard, was a beautiful type of dog to have that footwork and style that that dog had to burn you know like he was he was a he is a good bastard and i think that's probably just a good segue and it's probably just a learning experience i guess in you know for all of us is that you know how you know how unfortunately you lost him it's yeah, just mate. a really good lesson for all of us you know yeah i will i will tell the story and i've got to drive past it every time i go to town was i was just going to um i was going to to another block I uh, had the motorbike and, and a mob of dogs on the back and I never, ever tied the dogs up. 
Um, but I was just going out on the highway and um, and thought it'd be best to, to tie all the dogs up on the back with the motorbike and, and went over a rough grid and he bounced off the back and I ran over him, poor bastard. Um, it was terrible. I was devastated that day. I just rang Glenn and told him and, and Glenn was really good about it. Just like he was trying to console me. He's like, oh, mate, shit happens, you know, it's, a, you know, whatever. But, yeah, I was just... That day, I was just inconsolable. I, I, I just, I had to go to work for the rest of the day, and, <laughs> and, and it was terrible. I, uh, it was, it was tough. Um, I did have the foresight, thank goodness, to, to have taken the dog and got him collected before, before I lost him. Um, but still, it's not the same as, as having the dog here, um, because like. Glenn sold him for the simple reason that the dog was starting to get a bit stale at home. Like, Glenn was only trialling. He was having a lot of trouble with his hips, um, Glenn was, and um, he, wasn't, he wasn't working very much. He was, he was pretty much a stay-at-home dad um, and just doing the odd jobs that his hips would allow him to do just, just through wear and tear. Um, Glenn's as, as tough a bugger as, as I know and as tough as any man, but, yeah, just like wear and tear had got to him. Um, but, um, yeah, so the dog, he was looking to shift star on and um, and that's how he landed in my lap. And, and yeah, so I uh, was very fortunate that I, that I took the dog and got him collected that I can use him later on. Um, and I, I saw the dog do some, like, within... I, I never really saw that staleness in him. Like, he just got to here and saw big mobs of cattle and, and the dog just freshened up. Like, <laughs> yeah, he, I saw him do some great stuff out in the paddock. Even though I didn't own him for very long, I still still got to see the best of him, I think. Hey? And just on that, I mean, I, and we certainly don't want to dwell on it, but I guess it's something to note that, it, you know, make sure your dogs are secured. Yeah. It's, you know, I, really, it's really easy to put five or six dogs on the back and go for a drive but at the end of the day it's just those little yeah. things and and to that point you know I, I sort of made a a bit of a um pl- pledge that i you know whenever i was traveling on the highway they'd, they'd always be in cage yeah yeah for there. sure and, I, um, yeah. and that and I'm, like i mean the guys that i work for they're not dog people at all they just see the value of my dogs for their situation and probably maybe beginning of this year we we're over at over at prospect breaking in a um fresh mob of steers cross branded put the dogs around and blah 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 whatever we did and um jumped the dogs in the back and and were just about ready to leave didn't tie anything up and um was just going to go down let them out at the boundary grid to empty out before we made the trip home and stewie <laughs> Fires up behind the the vehicle and is like, "Oi, oi, tie your dogs up, tie your dogs up," you know. So, like, as much as he's not a dogman, he sees the value in the dogs for for um for for his project, you know, for his for for, for what they bring to the table for him, you know. So yeah, um, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> and I mean, I, I I changed the whole program now. Like, if the bike doesn't fit on the back with the dog cage on. It goes on a trailer and the dog cage goes on the back and the dogs go in that. Like there's just, it's too hard to find a good one to wreck one, the caliber of star. Absolutely. So, look, moving on to a much more positive note, let's hear about Rebel. What a crap. Yeah. Um, 
I think she's probably, to date, I mean, Coolway's been going since, oh, oh, Ash was little, 2001, maybe. Um, So since 2001, 22 years, she's the best I've bred. Um, By star out of Sandy, like I said before, but... Oh, mate, we were talking about that buckskin horse before being a, uh, as, you know, an um, article that you can take mushering and compete on. She's that in the dog world for me. Um, brilliant in the paddock. And, it. And, and, it, and her accolades are, are justification for that too, aren't they? Like yep. she not only has it been out in the paddock, it's been there. Yeah, what, what, yep. what differentiates her to some, someone else? Or like um, another dog, I mean, sorry. She wasn't the easiest to start with, eh? She was pretty wild to start with. We've had a few blues <laughs> early on in the piece. Uh, one afternoon, she grabbed hold of my jeans up here and was we were in a, we were in a bit of a fight, but um, she lost it. But <laughs> but um, um, was real hurdy, real hurdy early on. Like couldn't hold a position. Um, but I think just through maturity, just learnt to drive and you can inside flank her and drive away and cross-drive with her now and do a lot of cool shit. Um, but I think it was just her her ability to read stock was the thing that, that brought her into that situation, you know. Like, um, I'm a big advocate for training at home and not training out in the paddock and I think that's where you see your dog is out in the paddock. Um, so early on in the piece and and I think she was probably just that next step up from where Jem was as good as bitch as what Sandy is she's a little bit pigeonholed into being that bit sort of stronger type and just when you need her to be not strong she'll grab hold of something and just make a shit of herself especially in the trial arena um, whereas Jem was a, a nicer softer bitch still strong but had that really good ability to, to read her cattle and Rebel's probably the next step up from there. Nice footwork from Star and really nice breakout cast and um, yeah like we said before about the horse having different levels of rider on her probably um, so I've lent her to um, to be like um so luke's partner's sister and she's sort of runner in a few in a in a bush handler trial and and did pretty well with her got second with her and um like that dog is 100 percent devoted to me but if there's stock in front of us she'll work for anyone like i we run a few dog schools here and she's worked for for people that just have had no idea what they're doing but I just give them Rebel to take out and just let them feel what it's like to have a dog respond so quickly to your body language. Um, I think that's one, her biggest attribute is you don't have to step towards her or, or um, move into her to get what you need. It's it's more like a tilt at the head or a hand gesture or even just to open your hand up to something and she'll just respond to it so well. You know, like I think that's the thing that's helped other people will be able to work her at a dog school is the fact that she reads a stock so well, I. Eh?
Yeah, look, there's plenty of ribbons up on the on the wall that would just uh, testify to what you said and, and her ability because obviously there's only so much uh, training and, and your own, whilst you like to think it's your own skills, uh, in handling cattle yeah. at the end of the day, a lot of oh, it yeah. comes down to the dogs. A lot of it's her. Yeah. I think, I think, so she went through the first, through the um, the 2021 futurity down at Tugulua and... Um, uh, that was put back by COVID. Um, so uh, that was to her benefit because it made it was it made sure that she was just a bit that bit older and a little bit more training go into her and obviously work and whatever. Um, and went down there and the cattle weren't ideal. Uh, <laughs> and uh, she um, she cast beautifully and and got onto a stock nicely, started bringing them up towards me to the first obstacle and, and one broke hard and she, uh, like I didn't even get a chance to, to give her a command. She just she just broke hard and went to head it and um, got round in front of it and got her head squarely jammed into the ground after she bit it on the nose and, and like was on the ground reaching up to have another go at it and he ploughed her into the ground again and Glenn McKay was actually judging the futurity and he's like pull up pull up i'll give you a rerun mate and i wasn't nervous at all because i knew the dog that i had at the time and um and when she got jumped on and, and I, it all just happened like just straight opposite to where i was standing on the handless peg and and um i was like jesus that was a pretty um pretty hefty bloody bit of a um fight to be in (laughs) but still like reaching up off the ground while this thing had a feet on her she was reaching up off the ground to bite it again and anyway like i said i was i wasn't nervous going in but as soon as she got jumped on and and it took forever to get cattle sorted out for me and no detriment to the to the backyard people just took what it took and and um yeah glenn said oh you're right walk away from your peg so i walked back over towards where he was sitting judging and he's like you're right mate is your dog right I was like, oh, I don't know. She's she had fucking sand all through her eyes and through her <laughs> coat, and she was she she was just standing there beside me. She didn't look like she'd sort of gone through anything, and and um and yeah, I was just I all of a sudden just got really nervous because I was just just through what she what I saw her go through. I was like, Jesus, you gotta have something wrong with you, you know? Like, and um yeah came look got those next lot of cattle out and she puts them around for not a decent score for that weekend but it was good enough to get us back into the final and i think we ran eight and and um you know as much as you like to see your dog do well i think the thing for that weekend was was glenn coming up to me after it and just saying you know like, like the caliber of dog that was in that fraturity he said i don't think there was anything that could have done what she did out there, like cop what she copped in that first run and then do what she did in the second run. He said he, if there was any dog that was there that was going to put him around after copping a jumping like that, like she got then in that first run, first run you know, it was going to be her. So we, we copped a bit of a hard run there at that futurity but then came back to, to Gulawa in the Derby in 2022 and... Um, and yeah, so she won that, um, and I. It was it was a tough it was a tough go, uh, and sorry if I'm getting a bit emotional about it, but um, 
So to get to the Derby final, you had to qualify through the Novice Maiden and the cattle again, second <laughs> second year in a row, probably in the open, they were disgraceful, they were pretty bad. Um, just the way it was, you know, it's just, you know, yeah. you, you can prepare cattle as best as you can, but until you take them off the shit pile and bring them into an unknown area, you just never know how they're going to go. So... Um, through the open, they were, they were pretty ordinary, but we but just through trialling them and running them back through and whatever, they started to get better, but still had to qualify through through the novice maiden to get to the derby. And and um, so, yeah, when I went out for that derby run with Rebel, I was um, pretty bloody nervous. <laughs> but she got him round and we ended up going back into the derby final on equal top score. Um, um, with Charlie Brummel and um, Charlie's a bit of a joker as everybody knows and um, for the next probably 12 hours through um, having breakfast having lunch, drinking beers Charlie was possibly not maybe giving the impression that he was shit talking me but I think he might have been shit talking <laughs> me a little bit <laughs> um, and good on him too like I, I love a bit of I love a bit of shit talk. Don't worry about that. But yeah, I think the last the last little exchange we had was um, he said to me, "Oh, if I'm gonna run second to anyone, it, I'd love to be, to run second to you." And I just turned around to him. And I said, "Well, that'll be good, Charlie, because that's what's gonna happen." And um, yeah, so um, she come out and she she won the Derby last year, so won me a nice big fat buckle and. Yeah, it was good. It was great. I mean, from, from what it was the 12 months prior in the futurity and the tough run that she had there to coming back the next year and, and winning the Derby was good. And then from then on, it was just, oh, we just had a dream, Rana. Like, we, we won a few and placed. And oh, this year we, we ended up bloody um, running second in Nobs Dog of the Year with us. So And cracking the... Cracking the um, we didn't go through the whole year as a novice dog either, so we could still earn points as an open dog. And she she won two two novices and and ended up being an open dog. So we we lost ourselves an event that we could get points with. So Sam Donovan and I actually did the same thing. His dog cracked cracked open status too, but we could still get points through placing in opens to to get for novice dog of the year. And we sort of switched places a few times. His dog and my dog sort of thing, and he ended up winning and. And we come second, which was great. Like, I think the sportsmanship side of it there for up for the two of us was good. You know, like none of us, neither of us got hung up on it. You know, like each of us was was glad to see the other do well. Um, and Sam's a good man. Like he's a, he's a good young fellow. I got a lot of time for Sam. Well, that's I mean that's probably a fantastic segue just into moving away from individual dogs and and probably more to what um, you know you've moved towards as yourself and in, in giving back a little bit and, and obviously you know the presidency of the Dog Trial Association is something that you've taken over this year yeah um, and look I think it's just a fantastic contribution that you know that you were able to give you know a little bit back and, and what a what an awesome committee it is and association to be involved with um, is there anything you sort of briefly want to discuss about upcoming events or um, the direction of the association. We probably don't want to get bogged on, down on it too long, but just maybe yep. touch on it a little bit. I think um, the association, as far as a um, 
committee gut from a committee point of view, there's great people in it. Like the people that are in it are hundred percent committed to it. Um, and I didn't I mean, I just chucked my name out there, not to go and make any radical changes or anything like that, but maybe just for a bit of a change for change of the guard for future years. Maybe I'm not saying that I'm going to be um, a big change-making president or anything like that, but it's just it's just a thing that maybe might pave the way for some younger committee members later on. I think. Um, Liz Hughes is still our treasurer and been treasurer for a long, long time and she does a great job and she is 100% invested in that committee. We've got Cassie Kratzman as our secretary and, mate, i got the easiest job, really. Like, Jesus, I bounce Liz and, and Cassie. They're, they're just, like, 100% behind the committee and really, without them... It'd be a vastly different show, I think. I like. Um, I don't really think that there's a great deal of change to be made. Um, maybe we just got to be a little bit careful that we don't get too um, pigeonholed. Maybe just with a few of these um, um, stock dog challenges and that coming in that are unaffiliated. we just got to be a little bit careful we don't get overtaken too much by that sort of stage. Um, just that they're, they're offering, they're, they're, they're asking for more prize money and offer, uh, sorry, asking for more nominations and offering more prize money. So, and because they're unaffiliated, they can do that. They change the courses and people see a bit of a fresh idea. We just got to be, just got to make sure that we don't get too um, too on the back burner with that sort of stuff. We've got to stay a little bit more looking towards the future in the, in that respect for sure. Um, I'm not I'm not sure whether I'm the president to be able to be able to sort of bring that in, but I mean Wayne Wayne McGee's been very good about. Um, unaffiliated being the cancer of affiliated events and he's got a real rodeo background but saw it in there was that unaffiliated events even though they were asking for more nominations that they were giving more prize money and that meant that more people would go that way so we just got to be careful that through unaffiliated shows we don't get bogged down too much by unaffiliated shows offering more prize money through their nominations being more yeah excellent uh, awesome i mean and i guess the other thing probably just to touch on there is um well it's not related, related to the association is um the podcast mate two years yeah. uh november 21 i think it started yeah uh just give us a little bit of a snippet into like how's it going and uh what's on the radar for 2024 um well i've got to give a shout out to adam um adam rabel the co-host of it he, he, adam and i just met through dogs and Oh, like he's just a top fella. I, I get along with him so well, and and we don't get together enough. But when we do, it's really good, you know. Like obviously he's got that met, that filly down there for us. But even before he got the filly, it, it, um, our friendship really blossomed through dogs, you know. Um, so <laughs> we had a we had a bit of a idea that we wanted to start earlier, and another um, dog 
podcast in Australia started up and we thought, oh, we'll put ours on the back burner and let theirs, not through any conversation through them or us or whatever, we just thought, oh, they've started theirs, we'll just wait. Um, so we waited, we, we put ours on the back burner for, for a bit, um, probably nearly 12 months, but we were, we were sort of chucking the idea around for a fair while and um, Adam put me onto another podcast that he listens to over in America called um, Cow Horse Full Contact with um, Chris Dawson and Russell Dilday over there. And it's very much the same sort of concept. Just get, you know, have, have a presenter, a couple of presenters sit down with a guest and just talk about their life and how they got started, who helped them. And and, um, th- and we thought, geez, that'd be a good concept to have for the for the dog industry over here, eh? And in the initial stage, <laughs> in the initial stages of it, we thought, oh, we'll just do one a month. You do one, I do one. Adam concentrates on the southern guys, New South Wales, whatever. I concentrate on the Queensland guys. And we thought, yeah, we'll shoot at him. You do one, I'll do one. Like it's two months for us initially between podcasts for each of us. And, um, yeah, we just can't get there. <laughs> um, Adam's obviously busy running his own his own horse training business down there in Denman in New South Wales, and he does an awesome job. Like we've been down there a couple of times, and the care that they give to those horses down there is second to none. And and um, and so for him to be able to get away on even on a monthly basis, just through just through um, showing and training horses, is um, is it can stretch out. And um, and same here, like. I mean, um, December through, oh, well, most of December we're branding, sort of end of April we're branding again. And then once we sort of do our first round of weaning and then right through to the end of December, ah, sorry, end of September, we're just like weaning, preparing bulls. So it, it... gets a bit hectic and the podcast thing sort of just takes a sidestep, <laughs> unfortunately, because, I mean, the amount of – I've probably just got to say that the amount of feedback that we get um, after we put an episode up is so encouraging and it keeps you going um, to, to try and do more episodes. And it is through work that we don't get them up as regular, regularly as we should, but – I just got to say to everyone that that um, that supports us, um, yeah. Like uh, your feedback is noted, and um, we get a lot of private messages after most episodes saying, oh, "I really like that one," and, and um, the amount of likes on the Facebook page so quickly was was great to see too. So, yeah, um, yeah, awesome. And look, I, I think it is just fantastic, you know, what you're doing, and certainly, and quality speaks. Uh, probably bigger volumes than quantity and, and in that regard like it just you know keep up the great work it's great to listen to um, probably another thing that you have been uh, exposed to and, and been involved with is your is your dog handling schools in the last yep. 12 to 12 months to 18 months um, look how's that going and, and is there some more coming up yeah so um, there'll, there'll be more in 2024 and we'll just keep doing them now um, we really enjoy having them here, um, spreading the knowledge a bit, and probably prior to to sort of starting up, um, I ran my first one back in November last year up with Gary Went, 
um, at Ard Graham's place there. Gary wanted to get me up and run a school up there, so we went up there in November and did one up there, and it was great. had a, had a great time up there, and the rest of them have been back here. Um, but I think um, prior to, to running that one up there with Gary, um, I'd sort of had, you know, lots of yourself and um, uh, Nick Edwards and, and Lydia Nielsen were in the district at the time and they used, like, Nick and Lydia were really good for me um, from a training point of view because they'd just come basically every weekend pretty much and we'd just work dogs or, you know, in the mornings we might work them or in the afternoon we'd work them and have a few beers and whatever and and they were just sort of Nick Nick's Nick's been awesome for me because I I really got to give a shout out to Nick because when he first sort of started coming up here he he was quite a proficient dogman um but he just wanted to take it to the next level and it sort of gave me someone to bounce some ideas off of what I was sort of like my my dog training method or my program or whatever, and and Nick maybe might have took a few of them on board, and we still sort of talk very, even though he's moved out of the district now, we talk quite quite regularly about dogs, and um, you know he's gone on to become like he's quite quite competitive in the dog trial arena now for and in a very short space of time too, got some real nice dogs behind him and. Um. Yeah. So, and I, I mean, like Nick would, Nick would say too that that Jamie's Starrick's been a big influence on him as well. Um, which I mean, like everyone knows who everyone in Australia pretty much knows who Jamie is. But you know, I mean, um, yeah. So I, I'm not saying that I was wholly and solely, you know, the credit of the success the success that Nick's had, but. It was good to have someone around at that level for me to be able to bounce ideas off, to be able to then think, you know, like I've probably got something to offer at a school. And and Lydia was good in the respect that she was a completely green slate. Like she, and no disrespect to Lydia, she's a top girl. Um, um, she she was so green when she started coming and that was another level. Like I could I could have... Between the two of them coming up of an afternoon or a morning or whatever, I was bouncing ideas off someone that was fairly proficient to someone that was fairly green but still offering something to both. So um, I think that was that was good to set me up for the school thing. And I really enjoy doing it, you know. Like, I mean, I've been bloody lucky myself, you know, through through Bosey and, and, and Glenn and, and, um, and sort of probably other fellas that I should mention that – just don't jump to memory straight away but um you know even yourself i mean we've bounced ideas off each other for the last 10 years mate eh? so um yeah i i think it's i think it the the, the thing that makes the world go around is knowledge and the only way to, to make the world go around through that knowledge is to get it out there and spread it around a little bit eh? absolutely and, and i think to that point like there's certainly the people that i've um, spoken to that have attended your schools have just been so really uh, appreciative of the fact that it you know it, it is at different levels and obviously it's not just a trial basis it's also on, at a work level as well so full credit to you there but you know just on that point of, of giving back and and I think um, you and Kelly are both very humble people and, and probably don't 
um, you know, seek to get out any acknowledgement for it. But I think it's worth noting on the podcast just your generosity in terms of what you've given back to both the charities and organisations and, and even the, um, like the Tokyo you mentioned before, whether it be a dog or a pup or a service fee, it's it's very uh, generous of you, and, and I think everyone who is on the receiving end of that is very grateful. Um, but I think at a much higher level, it's it's very good of you to be able to share your genetics and stuff, and, and for the greater good. So, um, look, I don't need you to comment at all on that, but I just wanted to give a little shout-out. So thanks very much on behalf of the industry, I suppose, for that. Um, and... Um, on that note, we are going to slide into the tough questions, mate. Uh, <laughs> uh, mate, there's a, there's a few here. I've only got a handful, probably just to round out this interview. But um, one I just uh, probably prepositioned you a little bit with before. And what I want to know from you is, have you had, uh, while handling or training a dog, possibly even a horse, but preferably a dog, like a light bulb or an aha moment, um, where you've really understood what has happened and it made sense to you can you can you just talk us through that yeah so i probably said earlier about riley jumping in behind that crippled beast and and healing it away and then heading the heifers and bringing them bringing them down to me i might have pulled the trigger on that one a little bit early but mate i i have seen um rebel do some freakish stuff out in the paddock as well but i think probably a dog that I would really like to probably just touch on quickly was probably um, Gravity Gem. Um, she we sold her up at Rocky this year for, for fairly decent money, and and um, I from a very very early age I could see uh, some really nice stuff in that in that bitch, um, and we we sort of got her trained up and got her going pretty nice, and and took her out. First day mustering with her was on some big fat Brahmin cows, coal cows that were, were getting trucked that day. And um, it wasn't so much an exercise of taking her out and chucking her in the deep end. It was just like, we'll just see what you got. And um, and that, that little dog uh, for the probably four or five hours that we were mustering uh, was a very big eye opener for me. Um, she was just never in the wrong spot. Just read a stock so well. You didn't have to sort of, you know, you take a young dog out. You <laughs> spend most of your time chasing it out of the wrong spot. <laughs> um, she was just clean on the head straight away. Like, just like, and I can remember like Kel, if she was sitting here with us, she'd she'd say, but um, just remember sitting there and we were pulled up at a bit of a shade clump giving these cows a bit of a blow and and um and she I just mentioned to Kel, how good's that little bitch? <laughs> and she's like, Yeah, I know. You know, I, I mean like Kel could take her and, and do a job with her and I guess sale day this year. Um she was a tough old day. Um and like we got back. I got back into the stands after she got knocked down and sold, and Kel was just a mess, you know. Like, and I think that's a bit. I, you sort of you, you put your heart and your soul into them a bit. I think, I oh, you know, like I mean, that's just. I, I don't know about anybody else, but I know I know the the guys that I hang around with a lot. Yourself, 
included other people. Glenn, you know, when you get a good one, you really put your heart and your soul into it. And when you sell that dog, it it grinds on you a little bit. Like you start to think, have you done the right thing? You know, you, you look at the pens at home and you think, oh, I've got nice dogs back there at home that'll that'll sort of pick that act up but you know you, you sort of as much as you hate to say it you've, you've left yourself a bit of a hole because you sold such a good one but I'd rather sell a good one than a shit one any day of the week I got back into the stands after selling her and Kel was just a mess like for ages and even to the point where I was like mate rein it in she's just like <laughs> I put my arm around her and was like mate rein it in come on she's it's like oh no but anyway I mean yeah like she 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 was probably one on that day four and a half years ago or whenever that was, that first day to take her out and see what I saw that first day, like I was just like, wow, you know, yeah. that's a good one. <clears throat> cool. Um, the next question, I probably just need to frame up a little bit just to make sure that I don't get misunderstood here. And, and what I'm absolutely not referring to is online training because I think <laughs> just a fantastic resource. Yeah, for sure. I can't speak highly enough of it. But, but the question I have from you is, do you think that social media and our ability to share videos of our dog and our dog handling impacts our expectations from our dogs, for better or for worse? And, and probably just to explain that a little bit more, very few people put up the um, the photos or the videos where it doesn't work for them. You yeah. know, the only other thing you ever see on social media is when it happens. And, and sometimes I think that's to the detriment or is that to the standard that we're aiming for? What, what are your, what's your opinion on that? Well, as much as you didn't, you didn't want to harp on or, excuse me, sorry, um, touch on the uh, dog training online thing, I think that's where Jamie's really come to the forefront because he's not afraid to put a mistake on there. Um, and it's good for people to see that. Um, good for people to see that someone the calibre of Jamie Starrick can have a little whoopsie moment where a dog might slide through on the lead on him where he doesn't want it to and shut his cattle down. Um, and all credit to Jamie for doing that, you know, like um, because as you say again, people don't want to put the video on where the dog's making a shit of itself. Um for me, oh, I'm sort of, I'm a little bit torn between the two because I never, myself, I've never really put a video up where um, I've gone through a bit of ugly stuff. But in saying that, my training situation is vastly different to a lot of other people too. There's a very foundation-based thing from puppy stage to when I decide to put a video on. But, I mean, I, I probably have got a little bit more lax with that in the last sort of few years because, I mean, you've got to go through a bit of ugly stuff to see the good stuff is probably what I'm trying to say. Um, I think um, as far as a social media point of view goes and people putting videos on their of their dogs up, I think it can be to the detriment of the late maturing dog. Um, um, you see these pups that are eight to ten weeks and they're ripping around a mob of sheep and um, I think there's been a few dogs slide under the radar that might have gone to live somewhere else that should have been given a bit more of a chance because they 
were just dogs that weren't going to mature at that at that ten to twelve week stage or whatever it was going to be. You know, I, that's been a big learning curve for me. Probably in the last say ten years is to wait a lot more, um, wait and see what you've got. It doesn't mean that they're always going to work out, but at least that dog's had that full opportunity to show you what it's going to have. Yeah, good point. I really like that, especially re- reference there to the late maturing dogs. It's such a and yeah, it, it's such an easy call to make, isn't it? When you see those young dogs going round and and to to you know to create a comparison with your own dogs, but I I, I certainly personally feel that if you have see enough of an improvement every time in a dog, then that, that warrants the need. You know, to, to just, I guess, maintain the relationship and yeah, keep the sure. training program Especially going. if the dog's got a good temperament too, you know. Like, I mean, the buck dogs generally have been really early maturing dogs. They want to start early and, you know, sometimes you feel like you want to hold them back a little bit because for the age that they are, they're probably doing a little bit too much. Mm. Whereas my breeding program now has gone more sort of, I wouldn't say down a UK line, but it is UK-based. And they are, or can be, later maturing dogs. They might start a little bit early and show you a bit of good stuff, but they they do take time to mature. And so I've gone through that stage where I've gone through the hard and fast sort of buck daughters and buck sons where they're, they're out mustering by the time they're sort of 10 to 12 months, whereas when I've infused the UK back into them, it's taken just that little bit longer, eh? But there's still been a dog there for me to see, and I and you sort of have it in the back of your mind. Well, it's not ready to progress to the next level yet, but in time it'll come, you know. So, and I, and I might just take that point, just in terms of breeding and direction and everything, just to to bring up my next question. And and um, you know, I just can't speak high enough for dog trolling. I really enjoy it myself, and and I think it really provides a platform for us to to demonstrate you know the passion that we have for our dogs and the ability to control them and, and it's a reflection of the industry you know to be able to to move cattle in a quiet and controlled manner um this is my personal opinion but and and so i would ask for your opinion on it but do you think that there is an increasing desire to have control over our dogs and do you think that that is taking away from the natural ability of, you know, to your point earlier about that scarf, um, you know, that we can yeah. use in the paddock without talking to it. I mean, everyone loves to see a dog that can go left three paces and, yeah. in and go right <laughs> and do all that fancy backup. But are we, as a selection method, removing the naturalness out of that dog? Could you speak to that? Yeah, yeah. I, I always, I'm always very conscious um and you've you and probably Jake have seen the most of it um just through friendship and whatever but I'm always very conscious in a training session to have a very good balance between control and natural natural behavior um so I guess what I'm trying to say is I want to be able to get inside that dog's head but when I do, I want to be able to just leave the dog alone, let it go back to balance, let it do naturally what it wants to do. And I think that's something that certainly when um, maybe an inexperienced handler has a dog that's very biddable, finds that they want to control the dog more because they can and they end up 
maybe not sort of turning the dog into a robot, but certainly it turn, it ends up a situation where they might have to tell the dog to do a lot more than what they actually have to tell it to do. And that's one thing that I try and stress at the schools as much as I can is that at home is where we train and out in the paddock we go to work. So what I try and instill here into a young dog here is something that I can take out there. It still knows how to be natural. But if I have to, I can pick up on the dog. If the dog gets in the wrong spot, I can put it on the ground or, you know, give it a side command or something. By the time the dog's ready to go mustering, it's usually reasonably proficient on its sides or it knows what a side is. It might not necessarily take the voice command, but it'll certainly take the whistle um, because I try and incorporate that as much as I can at home. Um, But certainly the sit and the call off is there. So if if the side and the sit is not going to work for me, I can call the dog off and get it out of the road. Hopefully things will go back to being a little bit more controlled as far as a mob's point of view goes. But I think with certainly I've seen it develop here in a weekend over the course of the school where someone comes and they see that they can get a bit of control and they just want to take it a bit too far you just got to be very careful about how much you say and when you say it your body language is so crucial to them early on when you first start like that's what was probably one thing that I I see that um in a lot of people early at a school, like the first time we go to the round pen, is their body language is just way out of way out of whack, and they're saying a lot of things with their body that confuses the dog, you know. And I, I think, you, yeah, like I said, you can just say so much with your body without even saying anything as far as a whistle or a verbal, um, even to the, you know, like you could be giving your cattle plenty of room to walk, and just just a change walk around the side with your horse can change your dog straight away they pop out the side they see you they want to go to balance and it just changes the whole influence of the mob um i think that's one thing that a lot of people don't understand is their body language eh? yeah yeah great answer and and look it's really good insights from a working perspective as well and i think it's just natural instincts from a human's point of view that when we start to see the impact of our training we just want more, yeah. you know, and we just yeah, can't I, help ourselves. Mate, I've been there. Yeah. I, I've done it. Like yeah. Spark, as good a dog as he was, um, I had him to the point, and it was only through someone else pointing it out to me, I nearly had him to the point where he was nearly just a straight command dog. I'd nearly knocked all the natural out of him. Not not through pressure and pressure or anything like that. It was just me talking to him too much. And Trigger, I got to say, like Glenn Glenn McKay bred Trigger um, by his good dog Trip out of out of Munns Alley. He's a full UK bred dog, and he wasn't he wasn't an easy dog to start with. You know, like he was not a real natural type dog. He was a very much a driving dog early on. He wasn't herdy, and he didn't want to get to the head. He just wanted to pop in behind and just drive stock. Um, so, um, yeah, like, I had him. He, he was pretty weird at the start when I first started to take him mustering. He'd pop out the side and he wouldn't have heard me for a little while because everything else that I had there was nice and natural and just bringing cattle along and, and he'd pop out the side and because I hadn't said anything to him, he'd just sort of stand there and wait for a command and we'd just ride off and just leave him behind and he'd just have to 
was like, oh, shit, these guys don't give a shit about me. And I was like, no, mate, while I'm putting biscuits in your bowl and water in your dish, you go to work and you do your job. And I don't want to have to tell you what to do when we're at work, you know. But in saying that too, he's an insanely controllable dog. Like, you can do a lot with him, a lot of cool shit that I've never been able to do with another dog. Like, he's he's a good dog. He's a mad sucker, but he's good. <laughs> and, 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 again, that's just, that's just awesome. Um bit of a transition into the next question and that is and it's my last question okay so we're, we're ending this out but um you know the dog trial arena and, and it's something we're both familiar with and anyone who's been in there knows that it is um you know it's a really good reflection of the work we do but gee it's intense for both the handler and and the dog and probably more so the handler and, and look we've all been guilty of uh nerves and and probably driving our dogs the wrong way yeah yeah <laughs> But what I want to know from you is for the people that are, you know, getting into dog trialling or starting to, how do you prepare your dog for a trial in the in the week leading up to it? Um, and then following that, how do you debrief, like, on that dog? Because, like, yeah. sometimes we need to have command over instinct and really take that work off our dogs to a certain extent when we want to be in the trial. And when we get home, we want them right. just to go to work. Go so back to that. Yeah. Just talk a little bit yep. about that. Yep. So as much as I possibly can the week leading up to a trial, I try to have myself eliminated from the equation. Um, I don't work my dogs through obstacles. I work. I train at home solely on sheep. I don't use cattle at all. I don't work them through the obstacle that's set every weekend. A, a whole gate race. It's, turnout um i i just see that if you've got command over instinct you shouldn't need a an obstacle there to um to be able to like instill a foundation into your dog um i i have four cones set up on the on the ground in a square shape fairly big square shape probably 15 by 15 square shape and i um I'll stand way they're, – they're on one side of the sheep paddock and I stand on the other side of the sheep paddock and I work those dogs um, – I work those dogs on three or two sheep um, around that square, around the cones. Um, so they're – at times, they, and as much as, like, Kel stand here at the kitchen window of an afternoon or a night, you know, just on dark when I'm working a dog and she'll yell out, stop inside flanking that dog, you're going to a trial in a week – but I, I, I think that at, at times you need to be able to call that dog into that tight spot to be able to get out of a tight spot, I suppose, is for uh, a better setup. But um, so, yeah, all the, all the dogs that are going to the trial that, that weekend will work that square with me right out of the equation. So my body language means nothing, nothing to them. It's all command. So when they're doing the right thing, I leave them alone and let them drive. And when I need them to, I just give the side, let them turn the sheet. We work that square. Um, and then when we come home, and I've been there, like I've like come home and the next day you've got to go mustering. Dog sort of looks out the side and wants to know what it wants yeah. to do. And as much as it, as much as it goes, like you've just got to go right against the grain and just not say a thing. And eventually, it might take 30 seconds, but eventually that dog will just feel, oh, he's not going to say anything. I'll just go back to work. He's going to leave me alone, you know. So, yeah, I think, as like I said, I've, you've got to find that happy balance between training at home and going to work. 
they, they, they've got it's got to be a distinct line for the dog, so it understands. Yeah, great points. No, really appreciate it. And I think you know that sort of rounds out the interview. Um, I guess which is probably customary and, and part of the format for the uh, for the interviews. What uh, mate to you is one of the standout or motivational quotes that uh, springs to mind when when you well. <laughs> So I'll just use my stock standard. Um, every expert was once a beginner. I, I think for me, like, I, no one's born an expert. They've got to hone their craft. doesn't matter how much natural ability they've got, they've still got to hone their craft, I feel like. That's, that's been a good one for me. Yeah, good one. And, and I think uh, as part of that, I'm obliged to say one for myself, and, and I think I've probably heard it from one of your learned people on the interview or, or the likes, but mine is... Um, what, uh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, we just have a little interlude there. But mine is uh, handle the da- dog you have with you, not the dog you wish you had. So, uh, yeah. Thanks, everyone. See you next time. You've been listening to Stop Dog Handlers. Three Minds Connected. To get in touch, email us at stockdoghandlerspodcast at gmail.com.